Welcome to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Welcome back. You're listening to America This Week. I'm Carrie Weber, Executive Editor for America. Father Matt Malone is off this week, so I am joined by Jim Keen and Robert David Sullivan, two of our wonderful editors. Our guest on the show today is out in California. Jim McDermott is a Jesuit who has studied literature at Marquette and Harvard. He's studied Old Testament and liturgy at the Weston's Jesuit School of Theology. He's been a teacher at the Red Cloud Indian School on the Pine Ridge Reservation. He's worked at America as an associate editor, and he's got an MFA in screenwriting from UCLA and has worked largely lately as a freelance TV writer most frequently for most recently rather for the TV show Preacher and uh, even more importantly as a in-depth reporter on the topic of lilies for us at America. Father Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks so much. Great we, to be with you guys. We are so glad to have you, as always. So your story is called The Remarkable Life of the Easter Lily and the Farmers Who Make It Happen. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you decided to sort of delve into the origins of the Easter Lily in the U.S. Well, it's funny, you know, I have I wear two hats for America, and one is that every two weeks I'm responsible for trying to find a story about something going on in California, ideally something that has something to do with the Catholic Church, although not always. And about a, about a year ago, I was just looking around like, Easter's coming, I have a deadline, you know, classic sort of reporter crisis, and I stumbled upon the fact that, uh, just, just in Googling, frankly, that 99% of the Easter lilies that are produced in North America come from the very top of California and the very bottom of Oregon. Four family farms in this one tiny little corner, uh, to what would be the, the north uh, west corner of California. And so uh, I had done a short piece on that a year ago and found just it was a much bigger story than I thought that, you know, Easter lilies take three years to produce and that the story of the farmers is very interesting and challenging. So that's, that's kind of what got me interested in it. Yeah. After reading your piece, I kept wanting to like run up on the altar this weekend, this past weekend, sort of check and see like if there was a, a farm name or a brand or something on the lilies and see if I could uh, relate them back to the the people you spoke about because it, well, it's funny like even that i mean uh so there are farmers and then there are middlemen the uh the greenhouses that end up taking care of them for the last three to six months i'm probably getting ahead of myself but there's so many people involved it's a, it's a crazy crazy process and it sounded like it was such a complicated i mean delicate process you compared it in the story to playing chess or uh 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 no room for error in in growing these at all no yeah no so basically like you think of a typical plant they they bloom every year a perennial right but an easter lily while an easter lily does bloom every year it takes three years to to produce the uh i'm gonna get the word wrong now the seed the pod the uh that that will produce the lily that people want so, like, normally what people want in the stores, they want, according to the farmers, they want, like, five blooms. They don't want too many more than that because it starts to look unwieldy and they don't want less. And if you want that kind of a bloom, it takes 
it takes taking the plant, uh, keeping the plant in the ground basically three years. You remove it from the ground once a year to basically put new pesticides in to kill the the bugs, the nematodes that and other bugs, and then it's back in the ground. So it's a three-year process just to get it uh, to a point where it can be sold. It's, 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 it, and then it's greenhouses that are taking care of it for the final months and uh, growing it at the right time because Easter's different every year. So you have a plant that has to be, uh, that you need it every year, but every year the date on which you need it, and you have to have it for that date, changes. So the, the greenhouses are very involved in kind of modulating that from you. Right, even, up, even down to the, the height of the lilies, you write that they people once preferred 26-inch lilies, but today the standard is 24, and it's now moving maybe down to 20 or 22. It's it's a fascinating, like I look at the altar, I'm like, oh look, pretty, lilies. But these farmers and these uh, greenhouses and folks that are doing the designing are thinking, well actually it would be better if this plant was a couple inches shorter, a couple inches taller, et cetera, et cetera. Right, yeah, and there's the consumer preference in the height, and then there's also the the business preference in that if, you know, you have to have a box. The greenhouse, when they ship it to your Walmart or Lowe's or whatever, uh, they have to have a box for every lily, and if they have shorter lilies, it means they can put in more boxes in the truck. So it's, I mean, the connection between the growth and the business end are, it's it's amazing. It's just a... Uh, the level of detail that they that they have to be concerned about. Jim, one of the other elements of the story that I found very charming is that because there's only four farms essentially that are doing all of this work, that instead of competing with each other the way they used to, they more or less work almost as a cooperative. Uh, they kind of know what the other one's preferences and, and, and crops will look like, and uh, um, you, they sometimes go and help each other out. Yeah, actually, so yeah, so, you know, it used to be apparently that along the West Coast in particular, there were tons of lily farms, but it's because it's so hard, uh, uh, and the conditions need to be really perfect, and the uh, the best conditions are in this one area in Northern California, and so the number of farms have diminished, have diminished, and diminished until there are just, like you say, these four family businesses, and they, you know, they they would tell me stories about things like it used to be that you couldn't go into the shed of another another one of the farms, like where they're basically cleaning the the bulbs, where they're uh, packaging the bulbs, like that was all like trademark, like you were not allowed in there. And now, you know, they they're still independent businesses and uh, each making their own profit, but uh, or trying to, but um, but yeah, they they do work together, and in fact. For me, kind of the the key moment in the story for me uh, was when I first got there, they were all pretty apprehensive, actually, because journalists have often come and said, oh, we want to tell a story about the Easter lilies, and then they want to really write a story about pesticides, which is a part of the story that we can talk about. But uh, they thought that basically I'm just another one of those guys that's trying to make a sucker of them, and they sat me down as a group. And they wouldn't talk to me individually until we had talked as a group for them to basically lay out, this is what it's like for us when you guys come. And it it really, it both showed me the community of people, as you say, that's there and the way that they, they really are a family as well as four families, but also just, it made me see, wow, I, I have to be, uh, I got to have my eyes open 
and and uh, and my heart too. And in terms of reporting this story, that I don't just fall into sort of the typical storyline. That I'm actually paying attention to what's going on around me with things like pesticides or the business challenges and things like that. Right. Yeah, well, it, that's the sign of a very good reporter, we can say. Uh, Father Jim, we were speaking a little bit about the uh, sort of the many. Uh, challenges of the life of the lily farmer, one of which you mentioned was the pesticides and the appropriate use of those, the concerns by the community about the use of the pesticides. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, that and how it affects how they do their business. Sure. Um, We know any any farming, pretty much, uh, the question of pesticides is going to come in, right? In terms of how do we, uh, how do we care for our plants? How do we enable them to thrive? Um, and it's a particular challenge, I think, with Easter lilies because, as I said before the break, it's a three-year growing process. So right, just for uh, the bulb alone. Yeah, just for the bulb alone, and. There are a number of uh, pests that uh, bulbs have to deal with. The one that I write about in particular in the article is are nematodes, which are basically roundworms. They're little, the, the tiny, basically the same as a tapeworm, but really tiny, and they live in the roots of Easter lily bulbs. Uh, they're impossible to get rid of entirely. I mean, one of the things that I thought found fascinating was, you know, they have scientists that come out and help them, and they had taken one plot of land and had no bulbs on it for four years, I think the period was, and they had applied pesticides uh, at the right times. Or um, And even after four years with nothing on the land, there were still nematodes. So they, you can't stop them, but you can slow them down, right? So they have to use, uh, once a year, they pull all the bulbs out and basically apply, apply pesticides once again on the ground uh, and then can put the, pul- the bulbs back. So then the question becomes, well, that sounds like a lot of pesticides or is it a lot of pesticides, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a local organization um, called the Siskiyou Land Found, uh, Conservancy, which for about the last 20 years has been pressing the case that in fact, the pesticides are hurting people, the pesticides are hurting the land, et cetera. In fact, if you were to Google Smith River or Easter lilies, you'd almost certainly see an article like that in the top 10. It's something that uh, they've done a great great job of selling that case. What for me was a surprise um, was, you know, they were great to talk to. They're very concerned about the farms and the land, they say. Uh, but when I went to the state, California has the strictest pesticide regulations in the country. When I went to the region, when I went to the county, none of those claims are backed up, actually, by fact. The, the concerns that the Conservancy has, they appear to be more about pesticides per se, that it would be better if everything was organic. Uh, but in fact, so it's kind of a, a twist. Like you, you hear the story and you think, oh, it's like Silent Spring or one of the many terrible sort of pesticide stories. But in fact, it seems my research anyway suggested it was the reverse. That actually, there's a certain well-intentioned perhaps ideology against pesticides that's kind of uh, being put upon these farms, even though the evidence doesn't support those claims. It's interesting because it also ties into an argument you often have in the Western U.S. where people, even if they tend to be politically very progressive, do have this resentment of the 
authority of an outside group. I mean, you get it all the way up and down the coast from Washington down to California. And this is a very rural area. And so to hear from the state, oh, no, you have to change the way you're doing this, I could see how that would re- result in a lot of resentment, too. Well, no, I mean, I mean, the farms are in this, in a funny place that uh, I'd probably this is farms in California in general. Of course, they want to do what they think is right, but they're also going to do what they're told. And uh, in the case of uh, these farmers, as many farmers, they live there, right? They don't. If one of the things that they they mentioned as when these claims would come up is, you know, it's a uh, it's impen- it's incumbent upon us to change if there is a problem for our own family's sakes too. We're not our families, our workers. They they work and live there. If there's a problem with the pesticides, then we would want to change. It's but it's a strange it's a strange reality. It's 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 a really strange reality for them to try to convince people that. It's not them that's the bad guy because that is kind of the, the typical uh, – that's the narrative that we've kind of learned in the states and maybe in the world. And it's so often been <laughs> proven true that the, there are these problems that it's – they're really – they're fighting against the, the current, um, which can be very challenging. Well, one of the things that struck me when I was reading your story was um, how long a lot of these people have been working in the in these farms in the industry for decades? Like it's literally their life's work, and part of, that may be one reason why they've accumulated a lot of experience and knowledge and resent someone coming in and who doesn't know as much about what they do, um, trying to set these rules. No, you're absolutely right. That uh, I mean, the Westbrooks. Uh, if you go to, there's a little cemetery, you know, it's a very, Smith River is a very small town. It's a blink and you miss it town, like so many, like most towns really in the U.S., you know, you just fly by it on the highway. But if you pull off in the middle of the kind of the main street, just a little bit, like amongst all the fields, there's this little cemetery, just a tiny little cemetery. And uh, it was very picturesque the day I was there. There was like a hawk like floating overhead. And in the middle of it, or kind of in the middle of it, there's this very large uh, uh, sort of a statue. And it's to this guy, Henry Westbrook, who came, I think, from Germany in 1830. So his, I think it's great, 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 great grandson, Will, runs Westbrook Farms. You know, that's one of the four Easter lily farms. So, yeah, the, it's they've been at it a long time. Uh, their families have been at it a long time. And the other thing is, which sounds so interesting and, and really didn't understand about farming, it's 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 itself a whole process of sort of experiment and exploration and discovery. So the kinds of things that Siskiyou would be saying about you should try organic farming, they can list to you, these farmers, all the things that they try each year to try to kill the nematodes, to, uh, to try to improve the quality or the strength of the plant, the number of bulbs. Like they are constantly experimenting, which they say is kind of what part of what keeps them in the interested in the business like one of the guys harry harms he used to work in corn and he said it's it's a grind it's really regular it's always the same it's constantly going and there's not a lot of it doesn't involve your imagination whereas uh uh, easter lilies it's constantly changing it's never the same from year to year and you're constantly trying to think of new it's like you said you uh, referenced the chess game trying to find new moves new ways to make things uh to make things work. Yeah, I was also thinking of tomatoes as being the absolute opposite of uh, what you're writing about because I think of them now as being very 
uh, processed assembly line, not not a lot of care going. In. They've like turned in from these natural wonders to these kind of almost uh, synthetic f- fruit and. It's such a contrast to reading about the lilies, where, as you say, they are constantly experimenting. They're they're um, they're not using like uh, the assembly line methods of of like you said, corn or other other large crops, other massive crops. And one of the things oh, that you mentioned oh, is is the the innovation they have around the actual technology. Is that because their industry is so small, they're actually create excuse me creating some of the technology that they use themselves based out of other farm technology. Yeah, it really, uh, the, the, the image that I had was that game Mousetrap, you know, where you're like putting together, you have to put together like a sort of a, uh, an exp- well, it's not an experiment, it's like how the ball gets from one place to another by putting together all these different parts that don't seem like they would work together. Rube that's Goldberg. How it is that, yeah, Rube Goldberg, exactly, exactly. They're, uh, they're taking, you know, they have... Uh, washers from strawberry farms that are sort of left over and that the strawberry farmers aren't using anymore, or this from this kind of a farm. There are no, because it's such a small industry, there are no pieces made for them. Uh, or, yeah, so they're constantly trying to kind of put together things from other industries. Do you, do you think the next generation is ready to continue this tradition? Well, actually, so the next generation is is in there. They're right in there right now. Like Will Westbrook is and his brother Matt are in their 40s, I think, early 40s at Crockett Farms. Leilani Crockett is, I, I think, around the same age, maybe a little younger. Zeke Harms. So, like, the people in their 30s and 40s are pretty much, in many cases, taking over. Below that, I don't know. I mean, the real question, the real question is, can it survive? Because... In a way, there's a, there's a parallel or an analogy to, to school teachers. You know, you think school teachers, that job is incredible. It's it's fundamental to our society, and they don't get paid very well, which doesn't seem to make any sense. And similarly, you know, like I like we like we said, the, the Easter lily farming is incredibly complicated and innovative, and yet their, the, what they can make per lily is very little because. It's not a direct sales. It's not we produce this crop and we sell it to uh, we sell it to you, right? You can go to the the Harms or the Westbrook store and buy your Easter lily. No, it goes through not only uh, greenhouses, but really the real problem is it goes through big box stores. Like, if an Easter lily probably costs seven or eight dollars, right? Of that seven or eight dollars, they make a dollar of that if they're doing well. So three years work for a dollar of profit. Sounds like something out of John Steinbeck. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a tough model. I asked them, you know, so is there a way that you could actually get priced out by the the very places that are trying to sell your product? And they feel like that's a very real possibility that because on the one end, you know, Walmart or, or Lowe's or Home Depot, those sorts of places, their prices only come down. And on the other, the work costs, the labor costs only go up, both because they're in California and just in general, that's law that uh, what you need to pay people for uh, is, you know, it's only increasing. So they sort of find themselves in a, in a kind of between a rock and a hard place. And there's an interesting story in the article. At one of the main uh, sort of uh, distributors that they work with had talked 
to the three box stores, the three main box stores, about the possibility of just boosting it a dollar. Make it a $9, Lily, instead of 8 and that they had research that showed it won't impact your sales at all. So two of the three big box stores agreed, but the third said no, so they didn't do it. That's it. That, I mean, it's it's a real injustice, actually. I, I, I found myself as I was reporting this thinking, God, so much of so much of those sales come from Christians, right, and Catholics, you know, archdiocese and dioceses and individual churches and people who want the Easter lily in their front room for Easter. Like, God, it, if there were some way we could cut out those sorts of uh, cut out the WalMarts, I you know, I'm not a businessman. I don't know how that would work, but it just seems really unfair that uh, that the box stores get to do that and that we, the main consumers who are probably would pay more, uh, aren't even given an opportunity to. Now, Jim, we have about a minute left, but in that, could you briefly just say, tell us if you found yourself looking at Easter lilies differently this Easter? Did you kind of notice them and appreciate them more either at Mass or in your prayer? I'd say, I mean, I just see the people now. I mean, and that's that's why I was really so happy to tell the story is um, it's usually just a decoration, right? I mean, it has, it's a symbol, but it's just a decoration. But I don't see a decoration. I see I see these I see Harry Harms and Will Westbrook and Rob Miller and Linda Crockett and and the and the people that work on their farms that that have really given their lives to this. It's interesting, Jim. You know the scriptural story. I mean, Jesus uses lilies to uh, as an example of something that grows wild and free. And so it's interesting to hear that it's something that requires so much care and attention and handicraft and hard work. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That's right. Well, thank you, Father Jim, for your your insight into this, for your really great reporting. We really appreciate your uh, willingness to go out there and really tell that story. It's a pleasure, real pleasure. Uh, this is Father Jim McDermott, who is a contributing writer for America and a Los Angeles correspondent for America. And you can find his article, The Remarkable Life of the Easter Lily and the Farmers Who Make It Happen, at americamagazine.org, where you can also find all of our content that we bring to you at the intersection of the church and the world. And you can also subscribe to America by calling 1-800-627-9533. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Thanks for joining us. For Robert David Sullivan and Jim Keen, this is Carrie Weber signing off. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM. And tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.